Good morning. Before I jump into the text, today is a very special day. This is actually Lance's birthday. He's turning 60. (laughs) And uh, as a birthday present that he gave to himself, he assigned me to preach on Jacob I love Esau hated. (laughs) So... This is my birthday gift to you. (laughs) Romans 9 is a difficult chapter. Um, It's difficult in many ways, and it often has been a divisive chapter. You see words like election, and you see words like God's calling, and these examples from the Old Testament that maybe you're not as familiar with. And then you see God hating Esau. These are strong words. And these are difficult concepts to, to wrestle with. But I think there's a temptation whenever we come to difficult texts to just not want to go there. We just don't want to go there. Talk about something else. Let's go Go to the Psalms again, something like that. The problem is, the Word of God goes there. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, he goes there. And if we really believe this is the Word of God, we got to go there too. We have to follow where the text leads us. And when Paul goes there, when he starts to think about these ideas of God's sovereignty and how he works through history, He's not driven by just wanting to know arguments, you know, to beat down other people. Or he doesn't just treat this as some intellectual exercise so that he learns something new. But what drives him to the text? What drives him to the text is a deep love for his own people, a deep love for those who don't know Christ, a deep anguish over their rejection of Christ. Because as Lance preached on last week in Romans, 9, 1 through 5, Paul anguish over the fact that the Israelites, the Jewish people, his very own people, the very people who birthed the Messiah, have rejected Christ. And he's torn up about it. Why is this happening? The people who should understand it the most have rejected it. How does this make sense of God's goodness? How does this work? I remember I was recently had a Passover Seder with a family of Jewish Christians. So the father of the family, he grew up Jewish, and he became a Christian in college. And they still celebrate a Seder where they go through the Exodus story, and they talk about the Passover land, they talk about the sacrifices and all these things, but they complete that idea with how Christ fulfills all of those Old Testament patterns. And he's going through it, through Isaiah, through the Psalms, the prophets, and at one point he, he, he's thinking about his own family and believe, and he says, Why don't they see? It's all here. It's all here. Why don't they see? And you can feel that in Paul's words. For his own people whom he loves, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Why don't they see? And it's that love and that anguish that drives him to the Bible. And Gentiles, he's people who did not grow up with the Old Testament scriptures. 
And this is a problem for them because they're, they're, they're there and they're like, man, Paul, we loved your work in Romans 8. You're telling us everything works out for the good of the Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's amazing. Nothing can cut, cut us off from Christ. And then they go, wait a minute. Israel is cut off from Christ. In their unbelief, they've cut themselves off from Christ. What's the deal? Are we God's plan B? Has God's word failed? Has God's mission failed? If he can't keep them, how's he going to keep us? So a lot is at stake in this question. And Paul responds the way that he responds to every controversy in the New Testament. He goes through the Scriptures. He studies the Word of God deeply, rigorously. He dives into it to understand what this means. And his study of Scripture takes him from this deep lament, in the first five verses of Romans 9, joy at the end of Romans 11, to overwhelming joy in the purposes of God. He even says at the end of Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. How does he get from tears to rejoicing? He studies the scriptures. Do we follow Paul's example? Do we take our own questions, our anguishes, our loves, our desires, and does it drive us into the text? Do we wrestle with it? Do we, are we willing to be challenged by it and to be changed by it? And not only when we study, do we leave with just a smug sense of satisfaction? Or do we leave worshiping God? Does our study of the text drive us to worship at the grace and the goodness of Christ? Because that's the goal of study. It's worship. And we want to follow Paul's example all the way through, not just to learn some new facts, some new arguments, but to follow him all the way through to rejoicing and worship. And this is what Paul wants us to see, that the grace of God is better than we ever imagined. It's bigger and more expansive than we ever imagined. Now, when we approach a text, especially a difficult text like this, one of the important things to do is figure out what is it saying first before we try to figure out what it means. What is it actually saying before we try to figure out what it means? So I want to make three quick observations and then draw two points from them. First, Paul's answer to this question of why Israel, the majority of Israel, has rejected the gospel is that not all Israel is Israel. That's his answer. Not all Israel is Israel. And then he, he proves that point with two Old Testament examples. The example of Isaac and the example of Jacob. So all, not all Israel is Israel. Here are two Old Testament examples proving that. And then he draws a final conclusion. Why am I telling you about these Old Testament examples? Why am I saying that all Israel is not Israel? The point is this. That God's salvation is not based on works, but on God's call and his purposes in election. It's not based on works, but on God's call and his purposes in election. And we'll talk about what election means. I want to make two points from that. First, God has always done it this way. God has always elected 
or chosen some out of many. He has always chosen some out of many. And second, that choice of some out of many is a pure gift. It is pure grace and mercy. So he's always chosen some out of many, and that choice of some out of many has always been by grace. First, God has always chosen some out of many. When Paul opens up his argument, he starts by saying, has God's word failed? Has it failed? Has it failed to do what it set out to accomplish? And he goes, no, by no means. That is not the conclusion you should come to. And then he doubles down. He says, not only has God's word not failed, because Israel, the majority, has rejected the gospel, but Israel's rejection actually proves the faithfulness of God's word. It actually demonstrates the truthfulness of God's word. Because not all Israel is Israel. Okay, what does that statement mean? Well, Paul is referencing back to Romans chapter 2 when he says this. This is Romans 2, 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So not everyone who is ethnically a Jew, who's outwardly circumcised, is inwardly circumcised, has heart circumcision, a believing Jew. Not every ethnically Jewish person is a believing Jewish person. That's the point that he's trying to make. Now, not everyone who wears a Seminoles jersey is a true Seminoles fan. And when the Seminoles are, when the Seminoles are losing, that's when the true elect fans emerge. And in a similar way, what you see in the narrative of the Old Testament is the vast majority of God's own people reject his prophets, reject God, and there's a small remnant. Think about Elijah and Elisha who are faithful. It's a small remnant. So God has always worked with two circles. Think about two circles, a large circle and a small circle inside. The large circle is ethnic, national Israel, and the small circle is believing Israel. And not all people in ethnic Israel are believing Israel. There's a smaller circle inside a larger circle. So King Ahab, terrible king, he's part of the larger circle, but not the smaller one. But King David, he's part of both the smaller circle and the larger circle. And this is the pattern that God has always used. And so Paul says, look, I can give you another example. Let's think about Abraham's family. Let's think about what Abraham did. Abraham had two physical sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But only Isaac received the promises of God. It's a big circle, Abraham's physical family, and a small circle, those who receive the promise. He says, okay, let's talk about also uh, Isaac's own children. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. But only Jacob received the birthright. So out of many, God chooses some. That's what we mean by election. Now, the choosing 
what God refers to as election is, is very broad. It can refer to choosing a nation, a corporate entity. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, God says, I chose the nation of Israel. You're to be a light to the nations. You as a corporate nation, I have chosen you. But it can also refer to Isaac, I've chosen you. Jacob, I have chosen you for a particular purpose. Now, the Old Testament, it doesn't give us a lot of details on the eternal destinies of these people. So we don't want to say, God chose Jacob over Esau. That means uh, Esau is not saved or that um, you know, Ishmael is not saved. It just, the text just doesn't tell us that. Because election can have broad uses. It could just be to a purpose, not necessarily to eternal salvation. So it's a broad principle. But there is a general idea behind this choice, whether God is choosing a nation for a purpose, a person for a purpose, or a person for salvation. It's all God's choice. And this is going to apply to individuals in the next chapter, when it, or when in the next section where it talks about Pharaoh. So it does apply to individuals, but Lance is going to explain all of that next week. <laughs> but suffice to say, this is the main point. God has chosen some out of many, and that has been his prerogative. He has the right to do that. It's not something new. That is his election. God chooses. Now, when we hear that, it strikes us as odd. There's a tension there, and we should feel that tension. In fact, Paul is going to ask some rhetorical questions going, if I say this, you're probably going to think this, all the way through Romans 9. But this pushes up against our sensibilities because we go, well, what about our freedom? Now, I do believe we make real choices. And that is compatible with God's sovereignty. But, I, before we, but, but that's not the main point. The, the main point I want to press is, well, what about God's freedom? Is God not allowed to choose? We talk about our right to choose. To make decisions, but does God not also possess that freedom? And that challenges our view of God. Do we view God as just us with superpowers? Just us bigger? Or do we really recognize him as the transcendent Lord of all things? God has the freedom to choose. God owes no one salvation. Circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile, the fact that he saves anybody is a gift of pure grace. So we never want to draw contrasts where the Bible shows harmony. We never want to draw contrasts where the Bible shows harmony. If you went up to Paul, and remember, Paul is, this is a guy who's weeping over the lost. He's devoted his life to mission work, to planting churches, to preaching the gospel. And he's a full-throated doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty over all things. He doesn't see contrast. So if you went up to him and you said, okay, Paul, this is crazy stuff. God elects, God chooses. How does this work? How can I be saved? He would say, very simple, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. How do I be saved? How do we, what does this mean? You believe in Christ. You believe in Christ. You go, okay, well, God, if God does this, and Paul, if God chooses those who are saved, then why do we need to evangelize? And Paul says in Romans 10, 17, because faith comes from hearing, 
and hearing through the Word of God? And how are they going to know if we don't send people? How are people going to know the gospel with the election? We've got to send missionaries. We've got to preach the gospel. That's what he says. That's what Jesus says. John 6.33. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'll never cast them out. Anyone can come to Jesus. And the reason they come to Jesus is because the Father has first drawn them. Jesus harmony, not contrast. You go, Paul, that's confusing. Jesus, that's confusing. Well, just, to, just wait till you hear about the Trinity. Or the divinity and the humanity of Christ. But, but this is what we do as good Bible readers. We let the Scriptures harmonize. We look at them and go, there's this and there's this, and the Scriptures don't see them as contradicting each other, so I'm not going to. We're going to let the Word harmonize itself. And you see that here. But on a practical level, notice that Paul does not use the doctrine of election as a means to let himself off the hook from evangelism. In fact, it is jet fuel for him to plant churches, to preach to the lost. Because he has great confidence that it's not up to him. I can risk my life for this. I can give money for this. I can risk preaching the gospel. I, I, can, I can handle the persecution. Because ultimately it's not up to me and my cleverness and my smarts and all these things. Up to me. It's not up to me. So I can go full throttle. I don't have to worry about saving the world. I just need to worry about being faithful where I'm at doing what I'm doing. If we use this doctrine to let ourselves off the hook, we're not following Paul. And God is telling Paul, look, you have a right, a righteous anguish over the lost, over Israel. You should feel that. This doctrine should not make us be apathetic toward the lost. It didn't make Paul apathetic. It made him stay up countless nights in anguish, in toil, in stress over those who are lost but it doesn't overwhelm him because he recognizes the comfort of the sovereignty of God. So there's a deep sense that we need to care for the lost. We need to preach the gospel, but also not an overwhelming anxiety to say it's all up to us. We trust the Lord. And in fact, in Romans 11, God actually has a great plan for those who have rejected, at least temporally. That There's a plan that God is working out that Paul does not yet see. But for our purposes now, we trust the Lord. We take risks, we work hard, and then we go to bed. We go to bed trusting, Lord, you're the one who makes the fruit happen. You're the one who waters and, and, and makes the plant grow. We don't do anything apart from your grace. Salvation is a gift from the Lord. And it should be great, a great confidence builder in the work that we do that it's not up to us, that God is working through us and it is his power that will make his purposes come to pass. Now, this pattern of God choosing some out of many has always been a pure gift. That's the second point. It has always been a pure gift. Think about why does Paul use Isaac and Jacob as examples of election? Why are these particular 
portraits of grace that he uses? Well, because both were chosen without regard for their behavior or their bloodline. Both were chosen without regard for their behavior or their bloodline. Think about in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and says, you're my guy. Out of all the pagans, I'm going to choose you to birth a nation that will bless the world. And I'm going to give your offspring a land. And I'm going to bless your offspring throughout all the generations. So God chooses Abram or Abraham and says, this is a promise to your offspring. There's just one problem. Abraham and his wife Sarah can't have kids. She is barren. It's almost like a cruel joke. Why would you promise something? He can't have a kid. They're utterly powerless. And Sarah, in her despair, says, Abraham, why don't you impregnate my servant Hagar? And the result of that union is Ishmael. And Abraham's thinking, this is the offspring. And God goes, no, that's not the offspring. Sarah will have a child. But how? She... She's barren, she can't have children because it will be the power of God that brings it about. You need to trust me to bring life out of death. That's what you need to trust. So, Isaac is the promised child because he is born not of human works, not of human will or power, but of divine grace. You might think, well, okay, Paul. You got me there. But wasn't he chosen because he had the right mom? Like, he really wasn't supposed to do that thing with Hagar. I think he was chosen because he had the right mom. And, and, and Paul goes, well, what about Jacob and Esau? They both had the same mom. And Jacob was chosen over Esau to receive the birthright. And you go, okay, okay, fair enough. But I remember my Old Testament. Esau was supposed to get the birthright, and he traded it for a bowl of stew. So he did something wrong, and that's why God chose Jacob. Because he saw that Esau did something wrong, Jacob didn't do the wrong thing, so Jacob gets it. It was based upon Esau's disobedience. And Paul goes, ah, you're actually not reading your Bible closely enough. He says this, God told Rebekah, before Jacob and Esau were born or had done anything, either good or bad, that the older would serve the younger. So the choice was made before Esau or Jacob did anything. She was told the promise before they had done anything. Why? To show that God did not choose Jacob because he looked down and saw, oh, your potential is a little better. You lived a better life, so I'm going to pick you. Seems to be a better bet to pick you. No, the decision was made before either of them had done either good or bad, had done anything that could ever deserve chosen. God made that choice. It's based on his call and his gracious election, not their works. That's what it means for God's election to be unconditional. He did not choose anyone because he saw down the future that on our own strength we would come to him or that we were slightly more moral or anything like that. Anything you would look at in yourself, that is not the basis for him love upon you and calling you to himself. It's unconditional. And we see this in that final Old Testament quotation, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's a quotation from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. This is not a reference to individuals. If you read Malachi, you realize he's talking about the two nations that descend from Jacob and Esau. Israel descends from Jacob, and Edom descends from Esau. Those are the two lines. 
So now he's talking about the corporate choosing of one nation over another. And he goes, look, that also is not because Israel's more righteous than Edom. If you read Malachi, God talks about the sinfulness and corruption of Israel. So again, God is not looking down, seeing the, he doesn't have an algorithm figuring out, okay, Israel seems like they're going to be a little better than Edom, so we're going to elect Israel. They're going to be my chosen people. No, they're both wicked. But by his grace, he chooses one instead of the other to be his people, to have his purpose. And this is entirely by grace. Israel is chosen by grace. You read the Old Testament, we just studied Deuteronomy, and you're like, man, this is not the nation that's faithful to God. Like, I, there may be, like, rarely are they even a little bit better than the pagan nations. And sometimes they're worse. And that's what the prophets often criticize Israel of doing. So God did not choose Israel because of their righteousness, but he had set his love upon them. It was a divine act of grace. So what do all these examples have in common? The electing of Israel, the electing of Jacob, and the electing of Isaac. What do they all have in common? They all assume our absolute helplessness and dependence on God. They are all portraits of absolute helplessness and dependence on God. Isn't it amazing how when you read the Old Testament, how many pinnacle events happen through births, how critical mothers are in the biblical narrative. And not just any mothers, but mothers who are unable in their own strength to have children, barren mothers. Why does God work through them? Because they are living testimonies that God's promises and salvation comes not by human strength, but by divine power, resurrecting power. Why is conversion called the new birth? Because you can't birth yourself. You can't do it. It's something that is done to you. That is what the new birth is. God is the one who brings about life. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. That's such a key truth to understand. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he can do with it whatever he pleases. I read about this CEO who instituted this policy um, that he would pay all of his employees same generous salary, regardless of how many hours they worked. Pretty crazy. Doesn't sound like a great business plan. Uh, I read about this in a magazine called Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. <laughs> this is a parable of Jesus. We go, that's a bad business plan, and Jesus goes, it's kind of like the kingdom of God. Can you handle And you know what Jesus says at the end of the parable? He says this. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Am I not allowed to show grace and mercy to whomever I will? And will you criticize my generosity in doing so? Jesus is that CEO who gives the gift. And I think this is actually, this parable is a reference to the fact that the Gentiles are latecomers. And they're accepting the gospel. And they're receiving the same salvation promised to the Jews, even though they came later. And you see the, the grossness of God. God is not stingy, right? When we think about the elect, it's like, is it 11 people in a church somewhere? Definitely not raising their hands in worship? Staring blankly ahead? No. He says, actually, God is incredibly gracious with his elective purposes. Sometimes we sit and we go, man, 
I feel like I'm more gracious than God. Is that true? Look at your own social groups. Look at my own, I think of my own social groups. I'm like, that's yeah, mostly people that are like me, agree with me, that I like being around. And you think about the kinds of people God has drawn to himself through the entire Bible, and you're like, wow, these are some messed up people. I don't know if I would make them my elect. And yet there it is. God drawing people that you would never expect. Maybe God's a little more gracious than we are. Maybe we're the stingy ones. You ever complain about other Christians? Hypothetically, maybe. But they're called by God. God has called them. And maybe our love is too small. Doesn't mean we can't disagree. But we have to have that vision of God's electing grace. God has welcomed them into the kingdom. They're your brother or sister, whether you like it or not. God is the one who draws in by mercy. In the faith that you have of God, listen to Ephesians chapter 2, this is verses 8 and 9. By God you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's not just salvation, but the very faith, that whole process, by grace, saved through faith. That whole thing is a gift of God, not your doing. Even the faith you have is God's gracious gift to you. You ever capitalize on a nice deal? You see a deal, it pops up, and you're like, oh, got it. And you go, what do you do? You brag to your friends. Ah, oh, I saw it, and I did it. I knew, I knew it was going to be a good call. You do, you boast about yourself. You didn't make the deal, that was someone else. But man, you're the one, you're the decisive factor. You can boast because you were the one. You were the smart enough, smart enough one, the quick enough one to capitalize on that deal. Wouldn't it happen without you? You know what God says? He says you can't say that about salvation because the very faith that you have to receive the gift was granted to you by grace. You weren't smarter. You weren't better. It was purely an act of God's kindness to you. And it's not just faith to believe once. It's faith to keep believing. The very faith that we... Anybody struggle with faith? Want to go up and down? Yes? It's nice to know that the Lord keeps us. He keeps us going. It's his gift given to us. How do you know you're one of the elect? That's like asking, how do you know if you Not because you can see your own eyes, but because through your eyes you see all things. How do you know you're elect? You don't look at yourself, your performance, what you did right or wrong, or what the balance was, all these things that you look at. No, you don't find any security in that. You just find despair. You know that you are elect, one of God's chosen, if through the eyes of faith you see Jesus Christ. If you see that he has a sufficiency for you, that he has paid for your sins, that he has done everything for you, there's nothing that you provide. Only those changed by the power of God have that awareness. It's not a perfect, nobody has a perfect love for God. Nobody even has like 5% love for God. But it is the presence of imperfect love, even fluctuating love, that is a sign that the Spirit has born something new in you. Do you trust Jesus? That's your sign. Is Jesus enough? Is he faithful? That's where you find your security. Remember John Piper preached on this once, and uh, he said something that's always stuck with me. He said, do you know what the doctrine of unconditional election is? 
It's God saying to you, I want you. I want you. And he said this, some people have never heard that phrase uttered to them in their entire lives. They have never heard anyone say to them, I I want you. I want you. I love you. Not because of what you've done for me. Not because of what you will do for me. I set my love on you, a sinner. That's the free, pure of God. God has always chosen some out of many. And his choice has never been about our background or behavior. It is purely an act of his divine mercy. So our security is not in our goodness toward God, right? What's our security in? His goodness to us. Listen to this quote. In one word, he only is a true believer who, firmly persuaded that God is reconciled and is a kind father to him, hopes everything from his kindness, who, trusting to the promises of the divine favor with undoubting confidence, anticipates salvation, the goodness of God is not properly comprehended when security does not follow as its fruit. The goodness of God is not comprehended when security does not follow as its fruit. And this was written by the famously soft, fluffy, overly emotional, hippie Christian, John Calvin. (laughs) What would Calvin say? How do you know that you belong to God? You see his goodness. What's your security? That you got ten quiet times in a row? No. That God is good and he's unchanging. That Christ did it all for you. That's your security. And the elect are the ones who see that. How do you enjoy the goodness of God? The same way you enjoy the goodness of your family, of your friends. You spend time. You talk. You listen. You enjoy. Why do we come to church? Is it to prove to God that we love him? No. God calls us to worship. He was here before anybody got here to this building. And he calls us to him so that we could what? Sing, hear his word, take the Lord's Supper, and receive his goodness. Why do we serve one another? Why do we pray for one another? So we can know his goodness. Not to earn it, but this is how we grab onto it. This is how it becomes a reality in our life. Think about what is the Lord's Supper? It is us coming and going, Lord, feed me. And him going, yes, come, I want to feed you. You're dependent. You need me. You have nothing besides me. That's what drives obedience, knowing that this is the pathway to know the goodness of God, not to earn the goodness of God. So I want to challenge you to meditate on Romans 9. Don't be afraid of it. Sit with it. Let it challenge you. Let it bother you a little bit. But also let it comfort you. And above all things, let it set your eyes on Christ. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever. Amen.